Two and a Half Admins, episode 160. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Let's do some news then. And the first is that Unity, the game engine company, has changed its pricing model and pissed quite a lot of people off. And also caused quite a lot of confusion by seemingly changing what the deal is a few times over the last day or two. So the basics is they're tacking on a 20 cents per install fee for people who license the game engine. Every time somebody installs that game, it costs the developer 20 cents. And that probably sounds at first blush like, well, that can't possibly be a real problem, right? I mean, even cheap games, you know, sell for like five bucks. 20 cents isn't much out of five bucks. No big deal, right? Well, unless it's a mobile game that's like 79 cents or free. Well, the price also depends on a couple of things. This only kicks in after you're making at least $200,000 off the game and have at least 200,000 downloads. Or the thresholds are different if you pay for a higher license of Unity, like not the personal license, but if you have the pro one, then the thresholds are different and the price scales down to like seven cents an install or something. But a lot of the pushback has come from the fact that Unity seems to have failed to consider that people could use this as an attack vector. By just installing and uninstalling and installing and uninstalling the game, they could rack up a bunch of charges for the developer. And when it's an indie developer or an underrepresented developer or something, that could literally break the bank. It's, it's like review bombing, except for you can actually cost them money, not just cost them sales. And of course, actually uninstalling and reinstalling and uninstalling and reinstalling, that's one way to ding the developer for 20 cents per But that's the brute force and massive ignorance way. The reason that the uninstall and install works is because there is a network accessible API that you can hit. So if you presume a slightly smarter attacker who examines the API, it's not at all unlikely that there would be a way to just abuse the API directly at a much more massive scale than you could accomplish literally uninstalling and reinstalling a game. Yeah, and so... Because there was some concern about this, Unity came back and clarified, well, we didn't mean every install. If, if it's just a reinstalling from the same person, then it's okay. But you wonder how they're tracking that. And again, if somebody's abusing the API, they can just be like, oh, this is machine number, blah, 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 blah. And then that plus one, plus two, or just completely random or whatever, so that it will look like a lot of separate people for abusing this game. What's not clear to me is how they know what counts as an install. Are they doing tracking of users to work that out or what? Likely some kind of fingerprint of the machine that it may be easy to spoof, but also maybe if you change a little bit about your machine and reinstall, you'll get, you'll ding the developer a second time, even though you didn't buy a second copy of the game. It used to be really common for uh, setups like this that developers would try to uniquely track a user just by accessing the MAC address of uh, whichever their primary network interface was, or even just a primary network interface. Hey, built-in, globally unique user identification. Sweet. Only problem is, you know, especially these days, like what happens if you're using a device or an operating system that literally randomizes your Mac every time you, you renew a DHCP lease? Like, for example, every single iPhone and about half of the uh, Android builds out there and all of the Macs, and, and it's, it becomes a real problem. You could also be talking about, you know, some kind of a compound signature where you say, oh, we'll we'll look at the Mac of any network interfaces. And, uh, you know, if they've got the CPU identifier turned on in BIOS, we can add that in there and we can put all these things together and make a fingerprint. And we could talk a lot about what does or does not make a reasonable fingerprint when you assume that the only way 
that that API is accessed is, you know, by a game running their code. But again, all this stuff happens via an API that is looking for that fingerprint. So the question then becomes, how hard is it to generate a bogus fingerprint to do what we were talking about and literally just blast that activation server over and over and over again saying, oh yeah, I uninstalled and reinstalled this game, you know, a million times in the last 24 hours. Yeah, and... They've actually said explicitly that they will charge the developer twice if you, for example, install the game on your PC and your Steam Deck, which is legitimate to do off a single purchased copy of the game. Right. So the developer doesn't get paid twice. The developer just gets charged twice. They did clarify for some things like the Microsoft Game Pass that the 20 cent charge goes to the distributor. So Microsoft would pay in that case, not the user, although it's not clear how they tell whether the install of the game was via Steam or via the Microsoft game bundle. And I'm sure Microsoft's definitely not paying 20 cents. They must have a different licensing deal, but that's kind of beside the point. I would not be at all surprised if that also fell to the actual game developer. Oh, hey, you know, if this is a build for the, you know, the Microsoft store or whatever, it's on you <laughs> to use this separate code that will then identify it as such. So we bill Microsoft instead of billing you. Mm -hmm. Likely. But really this goes to show kind of the danger of using another company's product as the base for your product, whether it's a game engine or just a software as a service or whatever, is they can change their pricing model and their business model out from under you. And usually they will give you some warning. In this case, developers have until January, which is not very much time. They had like three and a bit months. That's not a lot of time to change your whole business model, especially considering it'll apply to games you sold today, but they get installed next year. And it will really mess up even just possibly your revenue tracking, how you figure out how much money you made off of a game. If after you sell it, you might later get additional charges from the, the Unity runtime. The other problem here is that even if we hand wave away all the problems we've been talking about, even if we say, well, I'm sure the API will be bulletproof and nobody will ever abuse it and there won't be any bugs in the fingerprinting that cause problems there... And, you know, there won't be abusive users and you know, all these other things that we've talked about. You're still looking at a real kind of a nightmare going forward because you have no idea for how long people will still be installing that game. You have no idea how widely your game will be pirated. And if your game is pirated and somebody installs it, do you think you're not going to have to pay the 20 cents to Unity? I don't think that's going to be the case. So essentially, by publishing a game that has this 20 cents per install fee tacked on, you're committing yourself to paying the Unity engine for you don't know how long, you don't know how much, you don't know under what circumstances. If that doesn't raise red flags, then you maybe should be looking for a consultant to help you with your business model. Well, it raises a new concern I hadn't actually considered. A couple years down the road, if Unity decides to do away with this thing and shuts down that API, is the game not going to let you install anymore? Does the game just suddenly refuse to install, refuse to run, you know, refuse? Which, anytime you look at this kind of per-user licensing, that's, that's always going to be a serious issue that you should be thinking about. Mm -hmm. Well, like Alan said, it's pretty foolish to build your business on top of something that is proprietary, whether that is software as a service or a game engine like this. It's hard to say that, considering that every game is built on an engine like this, except for a few companies that have created their own engine. I feel bad for our listeners sometimes they don't get the video because Joe started in on that last bit and Alan and I were both kind of, 
Yeah, wincing and rolling our eyes and cocking our head to the side, <laughs> but being quiet while Joe talked. Well, I was going to suggest something like Godot, as you would call it. What about a nice open source engine that is not going to pull shit like this? Joe's just waiting for Godot, everybody. Yeah, exactly. Well, I did. I was going to say way earlier that you put a link in the show notes to a utility that maybe can convert Unity games to Godot, although... I imagine a more complicated game is not going to be that easy to convert, but possibly, yes. But Unity is not the only game engine, maybe the only Mm -hmm. one going with this type of model, but that's more to do with the fact that they're trying to be more accessible to indie developers, whereas a lot of other game engines like, well, if you're not going to give us a couple million dollars up front, we don't even want to talk to you. There isn't always a great open source tool for what you need to do to get a product out the door. As much as all three of us are giant open source hippies, each in our own way, and we absolutely are, make no mistake, you just can't always wave your hand and say, you know, I refuse to use anything that that isn't my exact license, you know, that I prefer above all the others. You, you have to make some realistic compromises. And what we're saying here is not, well, this just sucks, but it was always going to suck because it's proprietary. What we're saying is the nature of the compromise is changing, and that's a problem. Yeah, and I think... Things like this may lead to more companies when negotiating licenses for their game engine, making sure there's clauses in there about you're not changing this deal out from under us later. Definitely. (laughs) I don't know if there is any kind of, you know, immutability clause when you license Unity for a game. I, I actually don't know. But if when you license it for a specific game, if your contract terms still state that Unity, the the company, can change those billing terms anytime they like. Ooh, maybe think real hard about committing to that one. Yeah, well, I think part of it was they drew people in with the, I think it's almost free for this one level of licensing to be able to start building a game in Unity. But yeah, I'd look for at least, you know, at least a year's notice on a change and things like that in the contract before you're willing to sign. But, you know, if you're a small indie developer, you don't have enough clout to go and get a game engine to change its legal terms either. So it can be hard to just redline things like that in the paperwork and expect to get anywhere. The real moral of the story here is just be careful. Yep. Pay attention to this stuff. Make good decisions because, uh, you know, there, there are absolutely terms in contracts floating around out there that will bite you. Yeah. And if you're going to make the large investment of building a product on top of somebody else's product, you want to make sure that it's healthy and going to be there and that They're not struggling business-wise, where they going to change their pricing model to make more money later, and all of the above. This is, in some ways, a a new-ish problem. And I don't mean new like last week or or even last year, but there are an awful lot of adults around who remember very well a time when things were of necessity different, because one developer can't just reach out across the internet and mess with you, you know, if you've used their code in your code. But these days, like everything is connected and nothing is static. Nothing is just finished and done. It can always change. It's no longer the case to just say, well, I paid the license for this code and now I have the code and I stick the code in my thing and the code works and it will continue working and it will continue to be unchanged and everything's fine. No, no, nothing works that way anymore. You can buy a book from Amazon and have it disappear from your Kindle a year later when Amazon says, oh, well, turns out we don't have the license to that book anymore, or maybe we never had the license and we didn't realize there was a licensing problem or whatever, but point is, you paid us for that book and now it's gone. We just went ahead and reached out and deleted that off of your device. 
It's the same case, you know, with these licensing deals with the engines. When you have a licensing deal that involves a call home to that company every time that that engine runs or the the whatever it is that you licensed, if there's a call home involved in that, that can always either go away from underneath you or serve as, you know, a fulcrum from which to apply a lever to you to get more money. Okay, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Kickstart a fresh autumn routine with HelloFresh. HelloFresh handles all the meal planning and shopping to deliver everything you need to cook a tasty meal at home. They do the hard part, and you take the credit. Ever wish you could spend less time planning, shopping, and cooking for the family, and more time with them? From easy, time-saving breakfasts and family dinners, to kid-approved lunches and tasty snacks, HelloFresh has what it takes to keep everyone, including you, happy and satisfied. Alan tried HelloFresh, and was impressed with the recyclable, sustainable packaging, and the fact that the meat was locally sourced. He liked all of the recipes, and really appreciated having the exact amount of each of the ingredients. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash 5025admins and use code 5025admins for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. That's hellofresh.com slash 5025admins and code 5025admins for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Toyota servers ran out of storage, crashed production at 14 plants in Japan. I can't really say that this is a tale as old as time, but it's certainly a tale as old as relational databases. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say, Alan? Yes. Like, I can picture exactly what happened on this. You can only insert so many rows before you run out of free space, and database engines do not like it when they request to write a row, and the storage system says, nuh-uh, <laughs> not going to do it. Even more serious, they say, during the maintenance procedure, data that had accumulated in the database was deleted and reorganized, and an error occurred due to insufficient disk space causing the system to stop. So in particular, if you do like a optimize or whatever on a MySQL database, it rewrites the whole database into a temp file, and when that's done, renames that in place of the old one, which requires temporarily twice the amount of available disk space. And if it doesn't happen, it'll just stop. It'll pause the database and say, I'm waiting for you to free up some face so I can continue. In some ways, working with a relational database engine kind of reminds me of working with, it's my turn this episode, Alan, CFS. How many times have you seen people completely fill up a pool and complain, I deleted all these files, but I still don't have any free space because they took snapshots and didn't think about it. So we very likely are seeing something very similar happening here where somebody very naively saw a uh, database server that was nearing entirely full in its allotted quota and thought that the solution would just be, well, I will just delete a bunch of stuff from the database. But (laughs) again, you know, much like when you don't take care of the snapshots, that part doesn't actually return you any new free space on the file system. In order to do that, you're looking at optimizing the tables. And like Alan said, that actually consumes more room. Like at the end of it, you might have more disk space available, but it's not the way to get disk space when you're already pretty much entirely full. Database might be able to work around this a little bit better now when we have things like ZFS with transparent compression, where it could 
write zeros over the deleted data to actually have it compress out to nothing, or even hole punch the file to tell like an SSD that, oh, you can trim that space. But also the file system would know that part of the file is sparse now, and you can reallocate those sectors to new data I'm trying to add. I don't know how many the relational databases actually do that. And you can have problems. Normally you can't do that at a granularity smaller than like the cluster or record size. And it might not always actually be helpful to do that extra work and doing those extra syscalls if they don't help would hurt performance. But they had this problem. And of course, because it was a replicated database, the backup server dutifully did exactly the same commands and ran out of space as well. (laughs) Say it along with me, everybody. High availability is not a backup. And as a result of this, they lost 36 hours of production time across 14 manufacturing plants. That is not a cheap mistake to make. It took 36 hours to basically copy all the data to a server with a bigger disk so that it could then finish the operation and go back to working. Keeping in mind that some of that 36 hours was very likely the time it required to eventually make the decision to get a larger server and set up the larger server and begin yada, yada, yada. As the register points out, Toyota, a master of just-in-time manufacturing, almost certainly has a recovery time objective shorter than 36 hours. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're not looking at like, yeah, you know, things went bad and uh, we worked the plan and uh, therefore we achieved our RPO and RTO. No, th- this was a dog's breakfast all the way around. And uh, what we're looking at is, you know, what can happen if you don't plan things out properly and you don't have procedures for everything and you get caught with your pants down with something that you hadn't anticipated. Then your RPO and your RTO become... Well, whatever they happen to be. Lidl recalls poor patrol snacks after website on packaging displayed porn. So there was a URL on the packaging of some snacks marketed at kids and someone forgot to renew that domain. A Chinese company bought it and now it is very much not safe for work. This is actually a pretty interesting tie-in, in my opinion, from the last one. Uh, it's maybe not that obvious what the common ground is between Unity tacking on 20 cents an install and uh, Little losing control of a domain and serving a bunch of kids Paw Patrol porn. That's not quite correct. It's not actually Paw Patrol porn. It's just generic porn. Anyway, the issue here is, is again, kind of one of, you know, considering the long tail and like what you have committed yourself to maintaining. Little decided that, you know, hey, it'll just be easy and fun and no big deal. We'll just register a domain and, you know, we'll put some fun promotional stuff on that domain and, you know, that'll be that. We'll print it on the packaging and everything will be good. And they didn't pay much attention to it. Why would they? I mean, what's domain cost? Eight bucks a year? No big deal, right? Problem is, then you you now have said, well, now I have this domain and I need to properly maintain this. It's The cost is not just eight bucks a year. The cost is also monitoring it, making sure everything's fine, making sure it doesn't expire, not simply because if it doesn't expire, kids might not see the fun cartoon when they go to your promotional URL, but because small children who borrowed or perhaps even just stole from the purse mommy's phone and went to the URL that they found on their Paw Patrol snacks are now looking at lovely young Asian ladies looking to date. To be fair, it's not Lidl. Lidl's just the supermarket. It's the company that made the Paw Patrol snacks in the first place. But that detail aside, your point stands. Yeah, what Jim is basically saying, if you're going to go and write the URL on the packaging for something, you got to make sure that that website continues to work to long after anything that has that packaging is gone. Like, hopefully these cookies aren't that many years old and people are still trying to eat them. (laughs) And they're 
fast <laughs> expired. But it seems like the domain just expired as soon as nobody was thinking about them because they weren't printing new ones. And that domain expires, goes to redemption, somebody else buys it because it's got some traffic and throws ads on it and who knows what else. That's the other point about how old it is or isn't. It was still new enough. It was getting enough traffic to have enough SEO juice to get some squatter interested in it, to grab it when it became available and start Mm -hmm. pumping out porn on it. They have lots to choose from and they chose that one. And they're not really choosing blindly. Like, you know, these folks know what they're doing. So this just points again to, in this case, the the porn scammers knew what they were doing. The Paw Patrol folks, eh, not so much. But, you know, I think, again, this is just one of those things that wasn't thought through entirely, because if you were to go back in time and grab all the executives involved in this promotion and say, you know, hey, so let's think about the downsides here. Um, What happens if we forget to renew this domain? I'd bet you everybody in the room goes, "Ah, well, whatever. I mean, if the domain goes and the kids don't get the cartoon, it's not going to be that big a deal. I mean, we're not really going to care about the promotion for more than a year or so. But the issue is that, you know, once you tie any domain name to your brand, you need to maintain that domain for the entire length (laughs) that you're maintaining your brand. Otherwise, you're allowing other people to associate whatever they would like to with your brand. And what we all should have learned by 2023 is that whether you're talking about proprietary software or open source software or goods and services, Your brand is really pretty much the most important thing that you have and needs to be protected above and beyond anything else, because your brand is what makes people decide whether to buy from you or not. Yeah. And I would say that you can just buy the domain for a bunch of years up front. Or you could just go ahead and advertise on Twitter, and then your brand's going to be right next to every horrible thing under the sun at any time (laughs) anyway, so you don't need to worry about this stuff anymore. Or (laughs) use a subdomain. Yeah, that is a valid point. Not as catchy for marketing, but... Yeah, but I see so many companies just having all sorts of domains that just effectively forward to a subdomain or just a, you know, domain slash page, whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I get it marketing-wise and stuff, but that just means that you have to keep paying for that domain forever. And if you don't, stuff like this happens. And the stuff like this is really the problem. It's not the paying forever, it's the keeping attention on it forever. I mean, if you want to imagine a long-running brand, I mean, think about the Ford Motor Company, right? How long has it been around? More than 100 years now, right? Mm-hmm. Well, imagine if Ford started today and starts doing, you know, promotional domains. Like, how many of those do you rack up in the next century? And for how long do you monitor those? And how big a number does that get to be? And like, now you're either paying attention to all of them or at some point you're just saying, eh, It's fine if somebody ties, I don't know, porn, Bitcoin, hardcore drugs, whatever, (laughs) to our brand via this old promotion that we stop paying attention to. Because the thing is, you can absolutely always say in a press release later, oh, hey, well, you know, that's this ancient promotion and it's not really relevant anymore and blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't actually undo the fact that somebody successfully tied your brand to something noxious. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. 
Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Mark writes, I'm wondering what would be a good secure router for basic home use. Ideally, it would get security updates for a few years. I had a Synology, but it died prematurely, not wanting to go that way. I was thinking maybe an OpenSense slash PFSense, but I'm concerned about its complexity. What about Mikrotik and RouterOS? Azus even crossed my mind. <laughs> As I get the impression they're taking security more seriously these days, at least regarding its routers anyway. Thoughts? Well, it seems that uh, Azus is not your recommendation then, Jim. Absolutely not. You are not going to catch me recommending an Asus router anytime. Uh, the, the obvious next word is soon, but I'm not sure that's the right word for the anytime that I will not be recommending Asus routers. As many of you know, I spent a few years professionally reviewing testing and, and reviewing routers. And uh, security issues aside, Asus has failed to impress many, many times. The interface looks really great to a, you know, an, an uber techie who understands all the words and is like, look, I can turn on and off like every possible toggle. This is great. The problem is when you actually test the damn things, they do not perform well at all. The interfaces tend to be a bit on the buggy side, which is the least of your concerns. And, you know, then you've got the fact that, again, we're talking about the router division of a company that decided it would be a good idea to just put wide ass open to the entire internet FTP for your personal files that you plugged into your router to be your own personal file server. So I'm going to go with no, no Asus. So let's talk about OpenSense versus PFSense. Similarly, I am never going to recommend PFSense because quite frankly, the, uh, the company that runs it is uh, bonkers. I don't know how to put it any better than that. So we're just going to leave it at that. OpenSense, on the other hand, is a fantastic router distribution. It is complex compared to a consumer router. However, given that you specifically mentioned a Synology, the interface on that is not easy mode by any means. So uh, I don't think you'd have a big problem with PFSense. Things don't really get complicated with uh, OpenSense or PFSense until you start getting into like want to create multiple VLANs and, you know, do QoS between the VLANs and all that kind of thing. And frankly, if you do want to do all that, you're going to have to buckle down and get ready for some complexity because it really can't be done simply. So I'm going to give that a definite yes for OpenSense. Finally, Mikrotik, their products are really inexpensive. They perform far better than they have any right to for how low power and inexpensive the actual hardware is they run on. And somewhat similar to Asus, they expose vastly more features than you'd expect on something that inexpensive and low-powered. 
unlike Asus, they do perform quite well. Like I said, the real problem with Mikrotik is you talk about being, you know, a little concerned about complexity. Now, the web interface on Mikrotik routers is simple and easy enough just to set up like, you know, a typical home network. You know, I want NAT, I want DHCP, and, uh, you know, maybe throw a couple pinholes in the NAT to forward a service through. That's really not hard at all. You won't find it a bit of a challenge. However, if you start getting seduced by all the, you know, really crazy high-end features that are there, I mean, everything all the way up to and including, I am not kidding, border gateway protocol you may enable on their $60 router board. Once you start playing around with all that stuff, the real issue is that router OS is very happy to let you apply a configuration that will utterly and completely brick it to the point that you need to do a paperclip reset to be able to get back into the device. So if that bothers you, stay away. If on the other hand, you're like, well, you know what? <laughs> That's why I have a box of paper clips at my desk and I've usually got five unfolded and ready to poke into something at any given time. Knock yourself out. You will love it. <laughs> yeah, I basically agree that something OpenSense, PFSense, the user interface maybe exposes some complexity, but it's mostly optional, right? You don't have to go into that stuff if you don't want those features. Getting the basic stuff going works really well. So if you have the hardware, then it's good. If you want purpose-built hardware that's smaller and, and quieter and takes less space, then something like a Microtik might make more sense. But yes, the people I know that swear by it are like, yeah, but other people getting a hold of the, the real admin tool for it rather than the web interface are buying themselves trouble if they don't know what they're doing. You're buying yourself trouble either way with the admin tool or the web interface if you both don't know what you're doing and are willing to do it anyway. It's the combination that's the problem. If you just don't know what you're doing and you stay away from the things that, you know, confuse and frighten you, you'll be fine. You really will. It won't be an issue. But uh, if you have that combination of I don't know what this means, but I'm going to click it anyway, well, Alan's holding up the little stabby thing and has been the entire time I've been speaking. <laughs> to point out that he's so committed to the paperclip life that he doesn't even use a paperclip anymore. He uses an all punch. Yeah, I have a tool that's basically a pointy thing for stabbing reset buttons. <laughs> it's a nail on a stick with a better UI. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Or at the very least, a better skin. And OpenSense will work on just generic x86 hardware, right? Yeah, that's a great point. You can install OpenSense on uh, generic x86 boxes, you can also install it on a fairly wide range of, uh, you know, purpose-built generic ARM router boxes. There's quite a few of those out there if you want to go on the lower power side. But probably most of the folks listening to this show, it's probably not that hard to find some random, at this point, relatively low-power budget desktop lying around somewhere. And if you have one of those, yeah, that's just absolutely going to make a great OpenSense box for you. All you need is two network interfaces, so make sure you either have that or can add that, but... Other than that, that's pretty much it. What I just bought for my TV, I uh, was actually looking at it would be a pretty good FreeBSD-based router, like OpenSense or whatever. It was a B-Link like EQ12, and it's a 12th gen Intel CPU, dual 2.5 gigabit Ethernet interfaces, and Wi-Fi 6, plus 8 gigs of RAM and uh, an NVMe and the whole computer for $180 on Amazon. And for those of you not familiar with that brand, that's B-Link. Bravo Echo Echo, like the insect, not D-Link, as in the absolute bottom-tier router manufacturer. Yes. And yes, two E's. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. 
We'll see you next week.